quick. Welcome to the 51st episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your host, Brian, here. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode, You Filthy Animals, with today's guests. I'm going to introduce you, because I'm feeling despotic today. I'm feeling tyrannical. Devin Kelly. Hi. Hi, Devin. Do I say hi? Jared. Hi. Marcel Pollen. Oh, Jared, how do you feel about the middle name? Is that like your uh, calling card literarily? Yeah, well, that was my uh, that was my great grandfather's name on my mother's side, and that is my official author's name. Yes, and I insist on being introduced in triple barreled form every time. <laughs> okay, good, good. We're going to discuss that later. Actually, um, you'll you'll see. So we got Devin, we got Jared, we got George Sawaya, we got Seth Katz. And I believe that's everyone. Is Have I left anyone out? The no-namers say. Anyway, yes, to, I, I, I said I was feeling, I, I've made a unilateral decision today. Um, I might seem a little jittery if I do. It's because I've been up since 4.30 this morning cleaning up wow. dog shit and dog vomit. I woke up to the smell of literal dog shit and I, in the dark. And I, I looked around for a few minutes, got back in bed, decided that there had to be dog shit somewhere in the room, <laughs> got up again, searched, found the dog shit. And uh, did you search yeah, in the dark? I searched. I, I was like, I didn't, you know how like you get up early and you really don't want to turn on the light, you know, like that. It was like that. Yeah. So I was kind of like, so like I was risking stepping in it while like looking around with my cell phone. Yeah, it was, it was so wild. Where was it? And it was, it was like, it was like near, it was like at the corner of the bed, like at the bottom of the bed and the foot of the bed, but it was kind of like near one of my suitcases. So like, it was, I don't know, it was, it was difficult to find. And since the smell kind of like just consumed the entire room, like, you know, that, that didn't really, uh, I couldn't really follow my nose. But anyway, this dog Kirby that's staying with me was just like, he's just like shitting his brains out this morning. And then, and then he vomited just about an hour ago. So I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling bad for him, you know? An exodus from all orifices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, when I get very little sleep, I get really jittery. So, uh, I've had uh well, I, uh, yeah. I, I smell no pun intended, a, a nonfiction piece emerging from this. Maybe. That's I was true. just gonna say you should. Dog you should shit have, in the dark by Brian. Should, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You you need to work on like a collection of essays about you know your encounters with dogs. You already had that one. I can't remember where you published it, but the one about uh, about Rosetta. I mean, this sounds like another one in the making. Yeah, just do a few more, and that's a book. A little bit of a different tone, but yeah, yeah. Or a, well, a you need the range <laughs> variety. You can't you can't you can't have a one tone book. They can't all be about fecal matter. Yeah. Does the app yeah. you use allow you to rate the dogs like based on their performance in, in your yes. custody? Like one star yes. shit everywhere. <laughs> like, yes, they dog. do. That's exactly what Rover does. They allow you to rate the dog afterwards, and uh, <laughs> you know every dog I've taken care of has gotten five stars. So you know you know. What? What you really gotta really gotta pull through here? <laughs> what um like a, a a slight tangent, but what I was thinking about this the other day. What 
what app or service like began the obsession with with rating our services? Was it Yelp? Probably Yelp. I mean, well, yeah, that's a big question. Definitely not Yelp. I mean, like Yelp was like the, I know. the Google, I'm, like the Google of rating. You know, like, yeah. That was like the, oh, rate my professor from the from the yeah. producer. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna have to say, like, probably Mark Zuckerberg when he did the rating, like the hot or not thing. Yeah. At Harvard, but it, you know? it's it's face inter- mash. It's interesting <laughs> that like at the uh, as because we now live in like a a rating conscious society, right? Like Goodreads, Uber, Yelp. Mm-hmm. And it, what's interesting about it, and I know this isn't the subject of our conversation. I don't give a shit. Let's talk about it. But what's interesting about it is that, like, the the prevalence of ratings now has made it that ratings are essentially meaningless. They're like, if you're if you you need four or five stars out of five in order to be considered a a worthy business or service, and like three stars out of five, which used to mean good, now means bad, right? Would you agree? Right. Yes. Yes. It's be it's become it's become weaponized. We're not like good at rating things at all. Well, we, if you're rating on a five star uh, scale, I mean, if you're giving someone three stars, that might still be good. But I mean, you're still knocking some points off for some reason. One would have yeah. to, if you're a fair minded rater and not just someone who you know who just gets on their phone and just you know angrily you know punches in whatever experience they just had. Yeah, I guess I mean we're 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 as a society we only give things one star or five or maybe four. Like very rarely do I see the thoughtful two or three star review. Or or we just pay or extort people to give certain ratings. You know that's, that's probably what happens more often. I recall that review for that barbecue joint in Mississippi that we came across. And we were traveling <laughs> oh, yeah. there. <laughs> it's where I go when I'm there. It's just, I mean, like, what a, what an endorsement. That's five stars. That's got to be five stars. Were there any stars attached? Or or was that... I mean, I could do a little... Quick. Yeah, well, I think, the ultimate, I think the ultimate test to that is Rotten Tomatoes, because Rotten Tomatoes is not qualitative. It's quantitative. It just aggregates a bunch of different reviews and assigns a percentage rating to it. But it's not about the subjective experience of seeing the movie at all. It's just a... Uh, yeah. Yeah, so like in Rotten Tomatoes now is like the authority it's, on movies. People people want to know like what it get on Rotten Tomatoes as if that's somehow an indication yeah. of the movie's quality. I yeah. think Rotten Tomatoes is an especially good example because because they are assigning a positive or negative value to a review that may be you know very nuanced and very mixed. I, I mean, Rotten that, Tomatoes. Yeah. I mean, they they will log a review by a critic and they will say this is either fresh. Or it's rotten, and then that you know determines the overall percentage, the aggregate. But I mean, you may have a review that is very much in the middle, and they ha- and someone has to come in and read that review and decide if it's fresh or not. Do you yeah. think a human does that, or do you think they have an algorithm that like searches for positive for or negative? Yeah, there's mm-hmm. no way a human does that. It well, should be rotten tomato, but it, rotten tomatoes isn't like Metacritic, is it? It doesn't aggregate sort of. other stuff, does it? Yeah, or, that's what or, I, that's where it oh, is yeah. a literal. It is an aggregator. Yeah. It oh, is it Metacritic. Oh, it's the so same it, as Metacritic. So, no different, so it is Metacritic now. It's Metacritic okay. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. The deliberate removal of nuance, which is the yeah. essence of tyranny. It's fu- yeah. it's, <laughs> it's funny too. I was looking at Goodreads. Like, technically, each star. Like, I'm 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 pretending to rate a book on Goodreads now, and one star is did not like it. Two stars is <laughs> it was okay. Three stars <laughs> is liked it. Four stars is really liked it, and five stars is it was amazing. So the spectrum is, there's only one star that says you can't, you don't like it, and it's the it's the one star one. What was two stars again? It was, stars okay. Just, it was okay. It was okay. Which like I I saw that the other I remember seeing this like probably a few months ago because I'm starting to to rate 
books I read on Goodreads in order to keep track of what I'm reading. And I went through and then I re re reviewed a bunch of books I had read because I was like, I I thought that three stars was it was okay, but apparently two stars is. You know, if I saw if I saw two point five on Goodreads, I would say this is a below average book. And I will say, yeah, that that was the audience perceives the stars differently. Yeah, exactly. Specifically to Goodreads, if you have a book outside the three point five to three point nine range, it's an extraordinary phenomenon just in itself. Because the average, like, of everyone just rating a book, it's actually kind of what, like, one of the things I wanted to talk about today. When, like, you know, in in relating, like, sort of the qualitative perspective on literary achievement versus, like, say, athletic achievement. Like, in Goodreads, if you have enough people rating a book, it's, like, look at every book on Goodreads. So many of them fall between that that range of, like, 3.5 to 3.9. It's it's incredible. Yeah. It's just like I mean, particularly it should, it should though, right? Like, that's what an average is, right? Yeah. So there's an average where people are willing, like there's an average score that people are w- willing to give. So they give, they decide their own range of what means average. You know, so like Devin, you're re-rating everything based on their scale. Like people have made yeah. their own fucking scale. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if I, like three point five to three point nine. If average, someone gave my know? book three stars on Goodreads, which has happened, it makes me sad. <laughs> like, yes, it's not... exactly. Yeah. That's because it's outside yeah, that it's, range. That's because the it, only it means that they you know? didn't like it. That's what it means. Even right. though, even though, even right. though, for Goodreads, it, it means they, they liked see, it. <laughs> yeah, like uh, let's look up a book on Goodreads. Like, what's a classic book? Just to like, kill a mockingbird, like a, a masterpiece. Oh, oh. To kill a mockingbird. Yeah, that's that might a universally get a loved book. It seems. I you know I don't know too many people who don't like. Well, I'm not that. sure which point you're trying to prove. <laughs> I, I want to see what the rating is. When I was growing up in uh, four point four point two eight, so yeah, okay. so that's that's a, you know, it's it's definitively outside the range. Right, well, cannot um, be disputed. Did anybody up, give it a one star? Like, up, let's read let's read a one Ryan, star review of To Kill Ryan, a Ryan, look up, look yeah. up, um, look up like a little life, like because that was like everyone's darling, or like Goldfinch, the Goldfinch. The gold, let's yeah, say the Goldfinch. It's, it's outside that, of that the, the really mean like. deviation. It's outside of the bell curve. 3.92 look at that that's just the hair and there yeah. it is 3.92 i swear to god it's like if I, I i used to play this game on goodreads which means i have a lot of time on my hands and i really just am a just a consummate <laughs> failure um if you know because i'm looking up i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm like i once had this idea that i was going to write a book based on like like a meta like like a meta data sort of thing where i was just going to take ratings from like reddit like basically like qualitative ratings from reddit and convert them into like some sort of quantitative rating but anyway long story short i've looked up a lot of books on goodreads and the range between 3.5 and 3.9 is is an actual like i feel like uh who wrote who wrote the the tipping point what's his fucking name jesus christ yeah gladwell gladwell could write a a, just a, a groundbreaking book on the 3.5 to 3.9. I don't know that Gladwell can read a groundbreaking book on any topic, but okay. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> I, well, that, that was inherent. The, the, the it was inherent to what I said, but uh, I appreciate you making it obvious for all of our fucking Philistines out there. Anyway, let's talk about what I want to talk about because I've made an executive, like, as I said, executive, uh, tyrannical, despotic, etc. etc. decision to talk about uh 
writing through the prism of the last dance. And I want to talk about it because it single-handedly motivated me to write again. Like, not that I wasn't writing before this, but in our, I, I just want to say, I want to make this admission for all of us that we recorded an episode before this and we decided that, did we collectively decide that it was shit? I think we, I think we followed the lead of, uh, Kate, yeah, of our producer, of our lovely producer. Yeah. Yeah. Katie said it was shit and we all nodded our heads because if we didn't, we were going to get sent <laughs> to the fucking gulags out in Siberia. So anyway, yeah. So the la- we were talking about the pandemic and how it was affecting our creativity. I don't know how I feel about that. Let's let's hold off on that. Well, should we now, just say maybe but, that the consensus was, for the most part, that it wasn't very good for our creativity? Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Like, yeah, yeah. Let's let's throw With that. The exception in there. of myself, we'll see, of we'll see what. Uh... Obviously. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, and we'll, we'll we'll come back to that. Anyway, this is the second time I've seen the last dance, and I don't think any of you have seen it, I've right? Seen it. Except George, yeah, you said you were watching it at yeah. that point. You've I've seen it too. Yeah. Okay. And it's not really important. The important thing here is that, you know, we all agree that Michael Jordan is either the greatest or one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And and he has a mentality that's just – I think a lot of people would agree that he's the greatest because of his mind more than his ability. Like, you know, by the latter years of his career, he was still reeling off championships even though he was nowhere near the athletic specimen he was before he was ever winning championships, you know. And I was, I was just so deeply intrigued as like, why was this documentary motivating me to write? Clearly it had to do with that mentality, you know, like I wanted to achieve like some sort of greatness, like whether people recognize it or not, like there's this drive to be great and I don't really understand it. It's like such, uh, it's just such an enigma to me. And, and I'm so interested in it that I want to get your takes on it, honestly. And I have a couple of, you know, whatever, whatever you want to fucking call them. Talking well, points. What are, what are, what are podcast hosts supposed to say? Thinking points, maybe. Well, just, I, I should say just right out of the gate here, because, you know, we knew we were going to talk about this today. I dipped into the both flesh and not essay by uh, Wallace on Federer just before we started this podcast. Right. And what he says at the end of that essay is that genius is, unreplicable but it's always inspiring and that genius does inspire even though we understand it to be singular and something that cannot be replicated or cannot be chased interesting there you go well i guess shut it down we're done (laughs) well the the idea like the recognition that genius is a kind of singular thing that you'll never be the person who inspires you the most but that person inspires you nonetheless yeah 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 I, i wonder if do you have to love the thing that the person is genius at in order to feel that inspiration because I love basketball, you know. Do you guys give a shit? Like, I mean, you know, like only George, George. George, you watch the Last Dance. You kind of don't give a shit about basketball. What was your? Yeah, reaction? I mean, like, uh, I really basketball is not part of my sporting repertoire. I, I tend not to really tune in all that much. Uh, you may be March Madness or something, but I mean, like, you won't you won't catch you won't catch uh, George dribbling around the. No, I'm not out him. there like you know. <laughs> Given like doing layups, not, and, a, not and, even and in the pre-dawn stuff. hours, getting into the rain. <laughs> pre-dawn crossovers in the driveway. Lacing, lacing up some tracks and doing well, Brian's, well, Brian's cleaning up dog yeah, shit. You're just you're just hammering free throws back <laughs> against the garage uh, door. I mean, that's our literary. It's secret. it's it's amazing to watch anyone <laughs> at the top of their game, no matter what it is that they do. Yes, I that's mean, a fact. 
Uh, we were supposed to have the Tokyo Olympics uh, this year, unfortunately, which have been pushed back to next year. Oh shit! I, I am a I am a huge actually. Olympic sports fan. Uh, yeah. I don't care what the hell it is. I'll be screaming at the television, half drunk, at like water polo, like Italian <laughs> men's team water polo. Yeah. Fucking crushing it, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. But like one of, one of the things that I can't claim to have any kind of appreciation for, like outside of watching it, is, is gymnastics. But when I watched Simone Biles, uh, the great American gymnast, uh, absolutely destroy world competition in the last gymnastics, I was over the moon. I was her biggest yeah. fan in the world. I don't know the first thing about about a balance beam or like what what being good at this looks like, but I know that she uh, was a fucking unbelievable. So it's it's just amazing to watch anyone like at, at a certain level of of competency, at, especially at that level of competency, like just be competent, you know, yeah. so overwhelmingly competent at what they're doing. Uh, you have to admire that because I mean you 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 I think you instinctively think about all the hours that it takes and all the drive that it takes. I always think about genius uh, as like a confluence of a great many. Um, attributes and chance encounters. I always think about Michael Phelps. He's designed to be a swimmer. His hands are perfect for being a swimmer. His body is perfect for being a swimmer. But I mean, he still had to like have the opportunity to go and get in the pool, right? He still had to have a mother who was supportive of, of taking him, uh, you know, as often as he wanted to go to swim. And like, there's it, just this, this great many things happened so we the world could have Michael Phelps, right? It's so interesting you say that because, like, you know, I came into like you know watching the Last Dance. It's the it's the polar opposite um, uh, sort of inspiration that you take from greatness. Because, like, my singular thought about it is why? Like, why did Michael Phelps do that? Like, why? Like, yeah, there's so many. Because, okay, here's what I learned about greatness over my 31 years: it is not enjoyable overall. I don't, and, and I think this, this is one of the things I wanted to talk to you guys about it. Like, why do people do it? What's the motivation? Because it's not enjoyable. To be that great is not enjoyable. The rewards are some sort of spiritual fulfillment that so far transcend the base, like the basal desires that we have, like to fuck or feel good or eat or, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, why did Michael Phelps yeah. do it? Why did Michael I, Jordan do I it? I think, why? I, like that's what I'm so intrigued. Yeah. I think, you know? uh, like George George said something about watching Simone Biles that I think is is key, which is like there's there's being very very good at something, and then there's being great at something. And like when you watch Simone Biles, like he said, Simone Biles destroys the rest of the competition, which is like what Usain Bolt did. It's what Michael Phelps did, which is like, and it's why watching greatness at the Olympics is like such a profound thing because if you watch someone like Simone Biles. You're watching her compete against literally the best gymnasts in the world, and like then they can't even hold a candle to her, and and like they they are made to look mediocre by comparison. And so, to your point, Brian, I think I think like that level of greatness, you have to like you don't just sort of sacrifice all the things that are cliche to sacrifice, like time and relationships and energy or whatever. Like you also sacrifice, I think, a relationship to the world that is that that is grounding and uh, puts you in solidarity with uh, the the great number of us who lay claim to our mediocrity and like and, and I think yeah. 
or just being a normal, or, yeah. or just being a normal. And I think person, that's. You know? I think like, that's yeah. where, like, I think at some point, everyone in their life makes a decision, whether or not it's conscious or not, to like to choose communion, <laughs> like communion with yeah. Um, yeah. a relatively large or small, mediocre and human few, or to pursue individual distance from from that that level of communion because like yeah you're right like anyone who achieves that level of greatness whether it's taylor swift who put out a new album today or michael jordan and it's not i seth seth made a face but like <laughs> it, we don't have to be critically you don't have to be critically great i think to be great um but like you you sacrifice you sacrifice that relationship to the world that like treats you as a human being you become you become superhuman you become you can't return to the world again yeah it's it's one of my favorite parts of the last dance where he basically it's a, there's a huge segment of one of the episodes one of the 10 episodes where it's basically like he's holed up in a hotel room and he's like like i'm done after this year cuz i cannot wait to not have 5,000 people outside my door, you know, and like, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, he doesn't want to do it. And yet he, it's the well, only yeah, thing I mean, he I, wants. I think what, uh, part of what you're talking about, this drive to kind of, you know, reach this exalted level, you know, above the rest of us mere mortals. I mean, these are people making themselves into gods, almost in a literal way. I mean, they are worshipped as gods. They are remembered. I mean, the, the fact that we're talking about Michael Jordan and not someone else is because of that level that he reached. I think that is probably, you know, at a, some subconscious level and at a very basic fundamental level is part of the drive toward greatness. But I mean, you know, down this road also uh, is madness. I mean, you look at someone like Bobby Fischer, you know, who was so committed to becoming the best chess player of all time. And, you know, I mean, he, you know, obviously, you know, went down a really bad road mentally or, uh, you know, in terms of the imitation of genius, you know, I, uh, as, you know, as, as a, as an avid listener of jazz, I'm always thinking about Charlie Parker and about those who tried to emulate Charlie Parker and thought that his genius was due to his heroin use. And so you had this whole generation of jazz musicians who started taking heroin, thinking that it would make them play like. Yeah. I mean, Charlie partner, or Charlie Parker's a, a, a byword for like 10 other jazz musicians of that. Like, well, well, no, no, well, no, 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 but, I mean, but for Charlie Parker was. What you're saying, what you're saying is completely yeah. true. Yeah. Well, the reason know? I think of it, him is because I mean he true. is just without a doubt one of you know maybe three most influential jazz musicians um, in yeah. history. But but um, in terms of that emulation um, that we were talking about earlier, or sort of the the drive to imitate despite the fact that you'll never reach that level. I mean, you know, there there ends up being a lot of casualties uh, of greatness. I guess uh, you know. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Chet Baker mm -hmm. himself, like not other people that tried to emulate him himself he believed yeah. he needed heroin I, to play yeah and I, I think when you apply this as as we eventually will to literature it becomes it becomes really complex and 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 sort of i've been thinking about this a lot like what you sort of i, I like your turn of phrase seth casualties of greatness i think i think as writers and as a writer myself and yeah, artists and artists, in general, it's, it's say, like, where you're about well, I, I think living now, I am more, I miss the way I wrote before I began to care about what other people thought about. And that's exactly, dude, and, what you just said is like, 
Yeah, you, you just phrased something that I've been thinking about uh, way better than I did. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of – because and that's the thing. Here, you know, here's what I'm going to put out there and not to kind of like totally lay waste to how you've been approaching writing <laughs> for the last several years. But like watching The Last Dance made me realize I felt like I was doing it all wrong and that I needed to totally reset like where I was coming from in terms of writing. I was like – because Michael Jordan is so great because he's totally zen. He doesn't give a fuck what happened before. He doesn't go, give a fuck what's going to happen. He doesn't give a fuck what other people think. He doesn't give a fuck how you should do it or how other people think you should do it. You know, All he gives a fuck about is playing the game to perfection. And and like he's he's going to do it in any way that like that leads to a to yeah a that's a, that you know? it's kind of goes to some what i was going to say earlier actually which is that genius is this kind of like non-negotiable relationship with the world like geniuses don't negotiate with their with the reality that they're born into like they kind of you know they shape it for themselves or the perceived, or the perceived reality, reality right for, like the like the, the delusions or illusions that like you know that get in the way yeah. the distractions all frankly that shit, that's like, i think that's so many uh, geniuses which, die young and i mean maybe part of why we think they're geniuses is because they didn't have time to you know sort of develop their talents or you know yeah or, or to get fall from grace but i mean yeah. you know i think about i think about some of these really prolific geniuses like john coltrane or um, Fassbender, the filmmaker, you know, who died in their 30s. And, you know, there is that kind of idea of burning the candle at both ends. And I think at some level, some of these folks, you know, at some cosmic level of consciousness realize that they have a limited time. Uh, and they really kind of, I mean, these people just explode. Their talent just completely incinerates everything around it. So what about Devin's point uh, about kind of missing the way that you were writing before you started caring yeah. what other people think? What, mm-hmm. what about that? Well, I, I, I was thinking after I said that, that like, I, it's, I don't, I don't think any sort of conversation of, of, of particularly writing and but I guess this applies to all art and this notion of genius. Like there is a distinction obviously between writing and publishing. And I think, I think that the notion of publishing as a world, like there are people who navigate the publishing world with the same Zen-like mentality and it has less, they have less, it's less about their concern for art and more about their concern for like themselves and getting the work out there. And so there are people who like network and like who are ferocious in their ability, ruthless ruthless to to scale the sort of industrial corporate ladder of publishing, which is interesting and different than the person who is like that that sort of figure we often associate with with literary genius like the sort of troubled mind locked up in the room or the mad woman in the attic the outsider artist yeah those sort of figures and it's it's fascinating in this moment in this contemporary moment because we can all sort of like open up our computers and bear witness to to like the the various minds at work of our age and it it like yeah and so it's it's such a complicated thing to talk about today because like i think yes there are those sort of like outsider artists as you were saying seth who who probably pursue their art or as you were saying jared like who have a sort of singular view of the world and pursue it with reckless abandon in their own room <laughs> but then there are people who like publish 10 books in 20 years and are, you know, uh, critical, critically acclaimed. 
authors and and I don't know it's it's just like those twin notions of writing and publishing are are so separate in in our moment now I think yeah and I I think it's because literature is is complicated by not just subjectivity like in in the most like generic sense but also like yeah it you have to like it, in order to make it quote unquote you have to want to do things that have to do nothing that have yeah. nothing to do with writing and and like I feel like that's like a decision you have to make that's what makes like literary genius and like athletic genius for example so different athletic genius is like if you wanted enough but you're five two and you love basketball okay the decision's been made for you unless you're yeah. mozy boats you're not gonna make it but if you're if you're good enough, yeah, you're going to make it because it's it's an objective league. You're going to fucking do well, was, better than everyone say, else. In literature well, – yeah, there, go, ahead, go ahead. There's also like – it's like there's there's an objective reality as to what good is. Like so it's yeah, like if you're exactly. – actually to your to – your, if, if you're 5'2", but you can for some reason hit 12 half-court shots in a row – like yeah, if you're Steph or, Curry, or, essentially. Or if you're, or, you know, not, yeah. you're, you're, you're 5'2 <laughs> and you get on a track and run like a 9.700 meter dash, like, you are you know. Yeah, yeah. But the the literature landscape is complicated because, like, no one has, like, good is, 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 is and will always be, I think, a relative concept. And, yeah, well, at, at, yeah, athletic, and, and also, genius, uh, athletic genius uh, is demonstrable. Like, if you score, like, 63 points in a game, like, there's no mm-hmm. arguing with that. If you're a great athlete and you blow everybody else out of the water in like the 200 meter dash or whatever, like there's no arguing with that. But, you know, literature is a gated world and you can send a, a genius manuscript to every editor in New York and they could all be like, yeah, doesn't work for me. But it's also like what you just said. It's genius is not demonstrable. Like, it, like explain the theory of relativity to uh, a million people and so many people are going to get it. You know, it, it's not you can't shove literary greatness down people's throats. And so that's why like more than, so the question became so much more complicated for me when I watched the last dance, because it's not only why would you pursue this? Because even if you achieve, it's not necessary. It's not really enjoyable, but it's also for us. It's like, why would you do something that literally has like, so like no benefit. Well, I don't, I I don't know if, I don't know if I'd say, I don't know if I'd say it's not enjoyable. I mean, it's, it's a passion and a passion by definition is like a state of suffering and like you have to suffer what you love and anyone who's ever loved anything, whether it's your wife or your children or like, you you know, what it is you do writing, being an athlete, you have to, there's a component of suffering in, in loving anything. And I think that's really more what it's about. It's not that it's not enjoyable or that it's, it's too difficult you know, in the case of somebody like Jordan, like it wasn't sustainable. He knew he had to get out eventually. Yeah. Well, what, uh, Jared, what does that say about you? Because you love so little. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Writing no, is I, it, man. I, I mean, I think uh, if, if there's a reason that, you know, that we end up pursuing, you know, a life in, in letters, um, it's because of it, pro- probably experiences that we had in childhood or adolescence or maybe in college where, you know, where we communed with something greater than ourselves by reading a book or through the process of putting pen to paper. And we know that there is something there. We may not connect with it every time we sit down at the writing desk, but but we know that that there is something out there that we can connect with um, in, in, in only that way. Um, and, and also just to, to, to the point about athletics, I think, you know, athletics are a useful analog for 
a number of different pursuits, but that analogy eventually breaks down at some level too. I mean, the reason it's it's a useful analogy is because of the kind of objective nature of it, because of the physical expression of it. So we often talk about, you know, to, to, to students who are learning writing, we talk about it as a muscle. You know, writing is a muscle. You have to, you know, you have to practice, you have to develop it, you have to, you know, um, you have to stretch, you know, um, you however you want to. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if you don't, then you're going to, you, you know, your talent is going to diminish. Uh, and it's funny. I mean, it, yeah, obviously it gets it gets complicated when you start talking about the very subjective ways that people interact with art. And, you know, something can be very meaningful to one person and mean nothing to someone else. Case in point, Ezra Pound. Um, but um, uh, but but I, I do think that um, athletics continue to be a useful analogy in that sense as well. Um, for the, what you were talking about, Brian, you know, if you are 5'2", you know, you have certain limitations that you may never be able to surpass if you want to be a great basketball player. And I think that's true of writing as well. I mean, some people just are more talented than others. And part of it is putting in the hard work and, you know, putting in the hours at the desk. Um, part of it has nothing to do with writing at all. It has to do with your with your ability to see the world, to understand, yeah. or at least have a perspective on the things around you. I think that that is something that ties it to, to the athletic uh, prowess that we're discussing as well, that there are limitations and not everyone can be Michael Jordan just by, you know, by, by practicing, you know, 18 hours a day. That's not going to get you there. Yeah, I would, I would argue that there are two kinds of work involved in writing, just two. <laughs> But I would argue the first the first work is cultivating a way of seeing the world, um, which I think is like a less talked about work. And I think a, a more difficult beneath the surface work. And like that's that's also a kind of work that has yeah. more to do with how you move through the world as a person. And then I think the second kind of work is is cultivating a variety of specific ways of expressing and communicating the way you see the world uh, like and that's done through reading it's done through practicing your art it's done through like like by reading you uh, internalize many different kinds of structures that can help you like better articulate the sort of architecture of the of the way you look at the world or, or build the world around you and then like I think sadly it doesn't stop I think the, the work of writing is like those two things but then the work of becoming a notable writer is this other work of like that's part luck and part drive and and like the drive is almost always there the drive is in like how do you get that thing that you created out into the world and like that's where things are separated i often think of like the amount of sort of great novels that that like will never see the light of day because no one gave you know like they didn't have the person writing them didn't have to drive for whatever good reason to sort of like continue trying to submit it or like continue trying to network it into the world. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that, that really intrigues me as well. The, like that kind of drive, like what, like the, the layers of drive in, in literature, like, you know, in a basketball game, it's like, I want to win. I want to win as many championships as I can. There's variations like, you know, you can win MVPs, you can win scoring titles, you can blah, blah, blah. But it's, it is a lot simpler. But more than that, like in literature, because it's so much more complicated, like how do you simplify the ways you motivate yourself? Like even Michael Jordan's uh, 
methods of motivating himself are legendary, like le- legendarily like creative, you know, like, I mean, part, part of the fun of watching the last dance was like how <laughs> repetitive, how, f- how like humorously repetitive the way it, the way he motivated himself was like in the sense of like, I can't tell you how many times he'd be like, so, so they got to the 92 finals and you know, the media were like, okay, now it's the showdown between Clyde Drexler and, and Jordan. Like, finally, we're going to see who the better player is. And then, like, you know, it cuts to them, like, interviewing Jordan, as they did for a lot of the documentary. And he's like, he's like, you know, they, they said he was on my level. I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll see about that. And like, <laughs> and like, and it just repeated every time. And, and like in 97, Carl Malone won in the MVP. And he was like, okay, so they thought he was the MVP. I said, all right, I took it personally. We'll see about that. <laughs> like, yeah. it just repeated and, and, and repeated. Yeah. And it's like, he simplified it. it. Like, he just made up stories. Like, once he would make up stories. Like, well, there's this story about him and this dude, LeBradford Smith. Okay. LeBradford Smith was like a Washington bullet back, back, when the, back when the Wizards were the bullets. And he drops 37. And Jordan's guarding him that game. And so they just so happened to play Washington again two nights later in Washington. And Jordan says – he tells the media that, like, you know, he's like, look, like, LeBradford came up to me after, right, like, yeah, after the game. He was like, nice game, Mike. And, uh, yeah, and so, like and – then, and so he tells everyone, he's like, I'm going to score what he scored in that game in the first half. And he only scores 36 instead of 37, but in the first half. And he totally made that shit really? up. Like, totally made it up. Like it never happened. Well, no, and Jordan, it's not like that shit didn't. It's happen. clear from that like, document you know, Reggie Miller that has Jordan a famous... has like an elephant's memory for like every single slight he ever received from everybody. Yeah, everything he said. He literally has like you know he he calls it a list. And did he make yeah. a list? No, the list is in his head. Like you know he was like, like you know when he retired to go play baseball, you know Byron Russell came up to him or Brian Russell, sorry, came up to him and he was like man, why'd you have to quit, man? Like, I, I could have guarded you. I could have shut, shut you down. And, like, Michael's like, all right, yeah, like, yeah. he was on my list after that. Like, you know. But, like, you know, like, how do you simplify that in writing, you know? Like, what like what do you do? Fa- like, how do you wake it's up? It's fascinating, go, like, too, because, how, like, you know? I love – it's, it's it rem- it, like, you telling that reminds me of how, like, my brother will send me videos back when NBA was – well, I guess NBA starting, right, Seth? Is NBA starting? Okay. Yeah, my yeah, brother would send me videos every once in a while, yeah. like uh, of like a LeBron James press conference when like LeBron, they'll they'll like talk about like a play, and then like he does this all the time. Like he'll he'll talk for like five minutes, breaking down exactly what he was thinking during the play and like where the defenders were and like wh- and the play had happened before, and he he just like it's like five minutes, and you realize they're always like so fascinating to watch because, and I, I was thinking about this as you were talking, because like, I think with sports, you don't, the greatness looks so fluid on the court and so natural and so much a part of someone that you actually are surprised often when someone like Michael Jordan has like a list of past offenders or when like LeBron James can actually break down like, like half second by half second what's happening on the court in hindsight and like has like a perfect sort of attuned athletic memory. I don't know if that has nothing to do with what you asked, but I, I, I think as like as writers, you're expected to have that. It's part of the art, this sort of like you're supposed to be smart. Yeah, but uh, the way you said just it, it kind of does tie in in the sense that like, you know, like, for example, to write like a really great novel, 
like to be a to be a good writer like just period not even great like you need to have that sort of memory you need to have that sort of obsession you know if you don't remember where someone you know where Chekhov put the gun you can't use it later and like no one else is gonna remember that because they don't care enough or whatever you know where that comes from though again is just this mystery to me that like I just don't I'll never understand because like I I don't display that sort of ability in like other things like I can't like for some reason when I'm writing I can remember that but like I can't when I'm doing something else well, I don't know to, why. to your point about sorry, no, I was just gonna say to your point about about obsession like you know in, in sports the pursuit of greatness is like it's its own motivating factor but I think that there is this sort of obsession a sort of a fetishization with something that writing is doing for you right whether it's like you just you just have a fetish for words like I I just love words right I think I think you have to have an appreciation for language but like a, a, a a fucking love like I, I really it gets me it gets me excited to discover like a word it's just a lovely a lovely thing you know if you if you go in speaking of greatness uh in art like if you go to the met in new york you can go up to and be like about a two two or three inches from uh van gogh's cypresses right and you just look at what he does with the paint like i i think i, I may have mentioned this once or twice before but it, it looks it looks like he just went crazy he went he went yeah. animalistic in the paint he loves his paint so much you can imagine that at one point he cast his brush aside and started using his his tongue you know or, or the tip of his dick like he just or, or his memory <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think, I think that's more of a driver in, in like the individual pursuit of being a writer, right? Yeah. We're, we're not after championships. I've never heard a writer say, I'm going to get like four Nobel prizes. I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that. Fucking poster, <laughs> yeah. You know? And that's, but you know, that's what's, you know, George, what you just, and, and, and uh, it's, it's fitting that I'm going to bring this up now because you love Hemingway as well, but so many people don't, well, so many people don't like Hemingway. Or, you know, whoever, whoever is like that, male or whoever's like that. But, like, it was fine. It was totally fine in Hemingway's time to be like, I'm a better writer than you. And that yeah, brutal that sort back. of competitiveness, you know. And, and, that's, and that's carried over in sport. But only to a certain degree, like, you know, even now when you hear LeBron say, like, I'm the best player in the world, people will criticize him and say, well, Michael never had to say he was the best. Everyone just knew he was the best, you know, he gets criticized for it. Like, I feel like there's, we've, you know, I feel like in a way we're exiting a stage of humanity in which like when it all costs brutal competitiveness is just like no longer in vogue. And I kind of, it bothers me. I think it's ideological. I think it's, I I I think it's ideologically ideologically in vogue. I don't think it's, um, I think to George's point, that's what I, I, George's point about like loving the medium, I think is so apt. I don't, I don't see that discourse in the writing world as much as I would like to. People like really talking about like, like you don't, you don't, you don't hear people talking publicly about like someone's syntax or someone's, someone's turn of phrase, someone's ability structures, like, like the, the, the things that happen on the word and paragraph level. Um, you don't hear people talking about how, how DeLillo writes a, a single paragraph on a single page and then takes the page out of his typewriter. Like, and like that sort of love of medium is like relegated to, I think like the ways in which we would talk about it as students, it's, it's probably relegated to craft classes and, and drinks after workshop and not like a larger discourse. 
where I think like the I think there is a deep competitiveness in the literary landscape, but I think it's ideological. I think it's about like I think it's 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 about the stuff you write about. It's not about how you write it. I think the kind of competitive braggadocio that we associate with writers like Hemingway and Mailer is also associated with a certain kind of you know brutish masculinity that is very much out of. Yeah, I was gonna and, say I was right. going to I was gonna give the right. disclaimer of like. Well, know, I wasn't gonna say toxic masculinity, but and I was I was gonna say like. I was going to say, I'm wondering if whether, like, you know, because it's not like there aren't women like that. Like, it's not, this isn't something, you know, confined to the male. I was going to just kind of flip it around and say, I mean, you know, the the latest kind of cause for celebration in the literary world is Colson Whitehead becoming what people are calling the literary equivalent of an EGOT. The EGOT being, you know, a performer who wins the Emmy, Grammy, uh, Oscar, and Tony. And, you know, Colson Whitehead has now won, I think, all the major literary prizes and is you know, is, is being roundly celebrated for that. And, you know, I, I don't see Colson Whitehead going out and, you know, s- proclaiming himself any kind of genius, but I think people are, are happy to see. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know that uh, the writing community or the literary world is more supportive than it used to be, but I think there's more of an emphasis on, you know, on, well, on that very idea of the writing community that we keep hearing about, you know, whether it exists or not. There's this kind of desire to have a, a supportive writing community, you know, where we, you know, where we champion uh, other people's work and we appreciate other people's work and we share other people's work, you know, rather than that kind of more individualistic, you know, drive toward my own personal success that, you know, we may have seen more of in the past. Yeah. Well, I do two, two things about, two, sorry, two things about that. The first one is that, you know, writers typically don't fit that profile. I mean, a few hyper-masculine writers have like Hemingway and Mailer, but generally writers especially these days are very vulnerable creatures and they're almost always modest or maybe falsely modest, you know, at, at worst, we don't typically associate writers with that kind of, of arrogance. Yeah. It's not usually in their character, or at least we, it doesn't seem to be in their character, but not only that, the second thing is that, uh, you know, insisting on being a genius is typically not a very good look. I mean, you could be a genius, but if you go out and start calling yourself one, like then you start to look like you're full of yourself and it never really, you know, it's not received well generally. Um, but, you know, you if you want to be thought of as a genius, you're always able to persuade a certain number of people that you are. And my frame of ref- reference for this in the in the world of art is a band like Oasis, for example, like in the early 90s, like after Definitely Maybe was released and after Morning Glory, Oasis was arguably one of the biggest bands on the planet. And they always used to say, like, we're the best band. You know, we write the best songs. We sell, we sell the most. We sell the most records. We play the biggest shows. Yeah, like we're yeah, the best yeah. band, and everybody thought they were so arrogant, but they had the temerity to say that. And there's something to be admired about that. I mean, it's yeah. You know, I I quite like that actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's like it, it, and and you know, it, it's obviously not binary in the sense of like you have to either do that or keep your mouth shut. It's like you know, uh, for example, like Brett, Brett Easton Ellis and yeah. uh, David Foster Wallace didn't necessarily say, "Hey, I'm the best writer of all time," but they had their own little feud, and like that sort of like Michael Jordan sort of bone to pick, and I'm going to do better than you. Franzen and Wallace had had like a, a yeah. quiet. Uh, rivalry and and yeah i mean in terms of intellectual competitiveness i mean being being smart kind of precludes you in a certain sense it being being metaphysically intelligent kind of precludes you from going out and claiming yourself a genius because there you have to understand a certain sort of uh standing in the universe right like you humility so 
But it comes, it can come in different forms, though. You know what I mean? And I, I do think that, Devin, what you said about the ideological competition of like, you know, what we're talking about. Yeah, I don't know. I'm less interested in that, to be honest, than like a sort of, you know, you see Elon Musk. He's definitely pressing buttons ethically, but no one's denying his genius and no one's denying what he is doing for society. And do I think it's like kind of driving him in a way? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I, don't know. I, I don't know where to take it from there, but I do wish it was kind of there with regards to writing and it was less uh, about that sort of like, yeah. oh, are you talking about this? It's, like, it's interesting what Jared said, I like about about most writers not actually fitting that that pro, that Hemingway sort of brutish profile. And it's and, and it's related to to what Seth said about like, like, I think there is a, a sort of the Internet has created a community of writing that is like you can be a part of um, if you want to. And it's funny how the community, the uh, like the community of writing sort of treats people who don't who just choose not to belong. Like, I th- like I think Franzen is a really good example of someone who like I don't associate with Franzen the same sort of hyper masculinity that I associate with Hemingway. Um, in fact, I find him to be sort of cute. Yeah. awkward socially I, like i find him to be like yeah i don't think he knows how to act with people like i don't <laughs> and like and i think that this gets right. him in a lot of trouble because like he doesn't have a social media presence but then like you can you can be guaranteed that like once a year jonathan Franson will publish an article or a review or say something in like the new york review of books that for like will control the literary news cycle for two days and like and everyone just gets mad at him. And I always, I find it funny because it's just like, what is he like? We don't care. It's like when Laurie Moore published that thing that we were talking about like a week ago. Like Laurie Moore is, I would argue, one of I love her novel, Who Will Run the Frog Hospital. I think it's one of my favorite novels of all time. And it's just like funny what these would like the writers who don't fit into the mold of like, I'm going to support I'm going to be a part of the community and then like. And like Delillo's another great example. It's just like he just sort of sits there in his house, writes his novels, and every five years we get a Delillo novel, and like there's a week of discourse about whether or not he's a genius, and then everyone who doesn't care about him stops talking about him because part of being in the community means you have to talk about the thing everyone's talking about for a week and then not talk about it anymore. I don't know. It's just like we don't know what to do with people who don't fit the mold of what we want sort of inner writer today which is to be supportive and generous and well i guess yeah 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 yeah, i guess probably the best and that kind of bothers me i'm not gonna lie like i I think that's what i'm i'm touching on is like it bothers me that like writing has become uh equated with ethics which in no way in no way should that be the case unless you're talking about journalism reportage you know like you know something like that other outside that all, you know, all we're doing is marching towards some sort of version of censorship, you know, and like, okay, I, I'm taking it too far. Like, you know, in general, like, I do think like there should be more of, because do I think people are different now than they were a hundred years ago? Absolutely not. It's just cultural. Like, you know, no one says what Hemingway said because it's not, you're not mm. supposed to anymore, you know, but people are feeling well, that. Well, to pick up on, to to pick up on what Devin was saying and like not knowing what to do with people in the in the the media landscape now is that um you know oh we're george is showing us a picture of uh of papa from life magazine that's right hemingway was on the cover of life magazine when was the last time you saw a writer on the cover of that magazine 
Wait, let me see that again. Is life even life life George, let me see. Do we still have life. It's one of the only pictures of him smiling. Oh my god! Uh, in, 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 he looks amazing. What's, he looks what's like behind a, him? an ad for visiting Montana. What's yeah, that? I know. Isn't he great? Don't you just want to have a cigarette with that man? Yeah, that, like, yeah, that, that looks like an old spice ad. Who's the Who's the guy from? Uh... Who's the yeah, guy from Parks and Rec? Yeah, from in yeah, yeah, it looks like him and... He should play Hemingway. He should well, play I mean, Hemingway. Well, I mean, it can't... I mean, he's, he's bound to be better than <laughs> Clive Owen. Yeah, Jesus. Well, Corey, Corey Stoll. Oh, yeah, yeah that was, the, that was the HBO special, right? Sure, but Corey Stoll in Paris probably was... Yeah, he was great. I don't think that could be topped. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Uh, you know, again, but we're, we're ethic... We're going into... Well, I'm wondering if Jerry can give us an assist from Lionel Trilling on this because... I mean, I, I think there's a difference between the way in which Trilling saw, you know, literature as important in, you know, developing a, a liberal and democratic society and the mm -hmm. way in which we now demand, um, you know, strong moral character in uh, in our literary works. I'm wondering if... Uh, well, actually, uh, while you're thinking, Jared, I, one thing I, I only recently learned, um, and it, it is true, you can, you, can, you can look it up, is that like the MFA program... As, as begun, uh, like at a place like the University of Iowa, which I think is the first example of one, like was a like was a prop was like funded by the American government to create and cultivate a like a national voice in response to communism and in response to like the fear of losing a sort of nationalistic, deeply American voice, if that makes sense. And like, that's really interesting to me is that like is like our institutions that have now created like the sort of updikes and cheevers and, 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 and into beyond like are doing, I think exactly what they're supposed to do, which is like, is like, we're like every year, the publishing industrial complex is publishing a bunch of books that like sort of uphold American values and ethics. Yeah. I have conspiracy <laughs> theories about that. I'm not going to lie. Like, I feel like Top Gun was, it was well. Top Gun was paid. Idea. Top Gun was paid. Uh, was was the Pentagon in part funded Top Gun? And if you look at if you, if you look at um yeah, there you go. Yeah, if you I look at U.S. naval recruits, the like Top Gun was essentially a giant DoD funded recruiting video for the Navy. And like like Yvonne Netanyahu. Yeah, it's a, so we're not in like a new landscape now. Like I I think the the idea of literature. We just like people don't talk about the way literature actually has a function for government and for society. And like we like to think of artists as outcasts and critics, but most artists who are published fall into the camp of the opposite. They are they are people who uphold the status quo. Well, OK, so try. I mean, I, it's difficult to kind of improvise an answer on this because Seth's question kind of caught me off guard. But that's what I that's I, what I was trying to do. That's what you're trying to do, man. Keep you off balance all the time. Yeah, I think. I mean, I just have to cite Shelley on this, who said that poets are the the unofficial or unadorned legislators of the world, which is to say that they're the like the legislators of our of our consciousness as a as a species and as a people. And to the extent, you know, I mean, that's really that's really what Trilling meant by the idea of the liberal imagination, the liberal mind that's always reinventing itself. And to the extent that writers have that responsibility in a civil society they are whether they know it or not all writers contribute in their own small way to the transformation of people's consciousness and the great for me the greatest example of that is arguably the greatest genius in the world of english letters which is shakespeare shakespeare completely revolutionized not just the english language but human consciousness i mean we are all indebted to shakespeare whether we recognize it or not 
he invented partly what it means to be modern. And I don't have like an hour to explain that in full, but I think that statement should stand as is. <laughs> Certainly among this crowd. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I love Shakespeare and he definitely was a genius. The way he was perceived in his time, whatever he was, you know, in reality, like I wonder how competitive he was and, you know, what he wanted, you know, did he want to make plays that <laughs> idiots in the pit fucking through tomatoes at i mean he's the i guess you could say he's the well, he did, he did have tomatoes. a <laughs> he did have a fairly well documented rivalry with christopher marlowe who was his mm -hmm. contemporary at the time i think he, he and marlowe had a competitive relationship yeah, until there you marlowe go. was uh, unceremoniously stabbed in a, yeah. in a bar fight by a uh secret yeah. agent of uh her majesty queen elizabeth i guess i guess it kind of seems like the the competitiveness nowadays is is based on yeah. moral disagreement I, and I think I think it happens in the moment. I think it happens. Like I think what social media and the internet has done is like, like, like Heming, like right. Hemingway. If we're gonna, I mean, I know, but like Hemingway and, and Gertrude Stein, for example. Like Hemingway owes a great debt to Gertrude Stein. But then they had like a falling out, and then like when he published a movable feast, like he trashes Gertrude Stein in a movable feast, and and it's like that's it's like that's the old way of doing things. Is like is like when you're feeling competitive or if you have beef with someone, you wrote a fucking novel and you, and you trash them in the novel. <laughs> and like, yeah. Well, and and it's, it's interesting you bring that up because in the last dance, one of the, one of the, uh, like a big feature of the last dance was how after the bulls lost to the Pistons two or three straight years in the Eastern conference finals, and then finally beat them and how Isaiah Thomas and, and Lambeer and every, everyone on, on the Pistons just walked off and didn't shake hands with them. And, and, you know, you know, Jordan's really pissed off about that. And it's one of the, one of the reasons why they had beef the rest of their lives. And, but if you go back, you know, the Celtics did the same thing to the Pistons when the Pistons dethroned them. And like that happened before. And, you know, again, like, I guess like it comes down to th things are changing. I mean, is, is it for the better that things are more transparent and that you can get on social media and, you know, it's more about who said what yesterday and like, yes and no. I, I think that's another conversation. But just overall, like I do wish, yeah, like you said, Devin, I wish it was more about the work. I wish it was more about the craft. I wish it was more about, is it fucking good? That's the real question, right? Like that's the question yeah, we should well, be talking well, about, but we're not. And yeah, and then we could have people having like, you know, friendly jabs at each other. I mean, did was was Hemingway friendly with Stein? Like, I don't know. But like, was anyone going to die over their feud? No. Like, I, I think I have fun hearing that, you know. <laughs> I love hearing Jordan, like, you know, prattle off his list, yeah. quote unquote. You well, know, it's fun. It's fucking fun. I want to see people driven to their best. I want to see them push the yeah, limit, well, you know. And on social media, yeah, it's like you're, you're, not, you're not seeing that. You're seeing, you know, did someone phrase this comment steeped in some moral yeah, well, quandary to keep this way, to keep you know? this in the in the, in the realm of literature if you look at the way the the most recent genius of our of our literary age has been treated and for me i think the the, the greatest genius of the last age is probably wallace and if you look at the way he's treated these days i mean after he died he was given angel wings like you know like so many people who die too young and he was 
you know, he was he was deified for a few years after his death, and but that's really changed. There's been a sea change against Wallace in the past couple of years, and some people really hate him now. If you go on social media, there's just so much slander and vitriol against him. One thing that it all has in common, though, is that none of it's about the work. It's all about like how nasty he was to one of his ex girlfriends. Right? It has nothing to do with his actual genius. Has to do with his flaws as a man. You'll see criticisms about his work, but and and some of them are fair and some of them are not. But no one's going to come out and say. Wallace because they can't, right? Everyone knows he was a genius. Statement. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing to say about that. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, like whether it's him, whether it's anyone, I'm more interested in what they wrote. I'm like, to be honest, like because no one's going to be pure. Uh, and again, I want to bring up the Last Dance because you know this is the prison through which we're talking about all of this. And you know, when Jordan's gambling addiction was unearthed, you know, that was the thing that they used to try and bring him down, right? Like that was the, you know. And they said, you have, a, you have a gambling addiction, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's all this extraneous bullshit that has nothing to do, which really his gambling actually was just part and parcel, you know, part of his, you know, what he called, like, do I have a gambling problem? No, I have a competition problem. You know, like, am I, am I, he said, like, am I hawking my championship rings, my house, you know, to, to feed my gambling addiction? No, I'm not. Like, I'm just, I'm rich as fuck and I can throw down a million dollars on a golf game. I right. Just so well, there, there, to be able to there's a story that they tell in the documentary where like the guys who were part of like the road crew, like the security guys, when they would be on the, the jet together, like the security guys would play cards at the front of the plane and they'd be playing for like $1 or $2 a hand. No, it was actually other players. It was, it was players who are also rich, right? Like they're also rich, but they refuse to play and for that much money. Like the big, like the big, yeah, but like the big boys in the back were playing like hundreds of dollars per hand, but like the guys at the front were playing like one or $2 a hand and Jordan went up and played with them and they're like why are you up here playing with us and taking like our nickels and dimes and he's like because i want to beat you and take your money from you yeah he said he said i because i want to say i want to say that i have yeah, like, i have like, your like, money in vicious, my pocket you know that was, that was what he said. yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. and i love it i love it it's just like i love it and speaking of genius uh i think you wanted to talk about this jared but like going back to that i mean you call it a trance state right that yeah was, well, that, was, that was the way that, that you framed it well, I was thinking about that before we started because I was thinking about what we like what we were going to talk about, and I think that one thing that both we can imagine is shared by both artistic genius and athletic genius is this idea like of the trance state when you're like in the zone. That's something that's very difficult to describe to people, but I think we've all of us have maybe at least touched it or felt it even for, you know, a little bit in our own work. And there is something about that that state of you know, unself-conscious flow, whatever you want to call it, you know, like athletes call it being in the zone or, you know, what, there is something, there is, there is something about that. Or, or, or yeah, there, yeah, there is something to that. I think that's true. Yeah. There is something about that for both art and athletics is that like that feeling of, of uh, the trance state. Yeah. yeah. And I think that probably has something to do with genius because I think you need to be able to tap into that. Yeah. I, I honestly think uh, it ties straight back into what I was saying about he, like Jordan doesn't have, any prejudice in his mind toward relating what is going to happen in the game in front of him or the play in front of him to what happened yesterday or the year mm-hmm. before or what will happen like the next I day think, or, I think or that, a year from now. I think that we all experience, I think we all experience the trance state in the presence of genius. I mean, we have all felt, you know, you, you may not normally call it a trance state, but when you're reading a book, when you're reading a novel and you're so involved in the story and you're not thinking about anything 
outside of you know the covers of that book. I mean, you have the same experience watching a really intense basketball game where you are so keyed into the action and you're you know you're ready to break something you know when the ball doesn't go in the net. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if that's exactly the same thing as you know um, as an athlete who's you know who's in the zone or, or uh, however you want to call it, or a writer who's really kind of commuting with something as they're moving the pen across the page, but. But I think, well, certainly as, as a writer, I mean, you know, so much of my motivation to, to write comes from my experiences reading, just sitting alone with a book and, yeah. you know, and going off somewhere else, somewhere that, you know, I'm not physically, you know, where you're kind of transcending your physical self. At least that's what reading a really good book feels like to me. There, there, there are some great works that were, I mean, we have to, we have to assume were created in, in, in that place, uh, you know, uh, books or poems that were written in, in a kind of fever, a kind of fugue state. I mean, like how, how on earth does Mary Shelley write Frankenstein and, you know, uh-huh. the amount of the window of time that she wrote, if she hadn't, if she didn't just sort of let herself go, or if you, if you were to read Howell. the Whitman, yeah, leave, leave, Howell, absolutely. Whitman, Ginsburg, yeah, one of Ginsburg's favorites, Leaves of Grass. Yeah. Blake. I mean, there is a, a lot of it, especially I'm glad you brought up William Blake, of course, because I mean, to him, it was a transcendent act. He was he was sort of making his own uh, connection. He was laying line between him and and the divine, you know, because he was driven by uh, that that need to transcend through language. Uh, it shares a lot with with sporting greatness, and it shares a lot with. I would even go so far as to say religious fervor, right? As a, as a half-lapsed Catholic, like it's difficult when you walk into a church not to feel the presence, right? The architecture and the stained glass. It is when you when you when you when you commune in that way and allow yourself to just sort of go uh, along with it. You do. It is almost like a what one one can imagine an, an oracle at Delphi, right? Sort of breathing in toxic cave fumes and then and then writhing around right something spiritual something ecstatic about about creation or about playing basketball uh, at the at the highest level right just sort of the shutting off of the conscious mind that's probably one of the reasons writing is so fucking hard is because it's a paradox like in in sport you literally can have muscle memory right like you can prep like even the triangle that phil jackson ran with the bulls was like one of the most complicated offenses, you know, ever conceived. And there were like something like 50 something out- outcomes, possible outcomes from running it. But if you run it enough times, like, you know, those outcomes aren't something you remember. They're just something that uh-huh. naturally comes from running it. And and you practice your jump shot, you practice passing. You can literally play like it is literally beneficial to your cause to play unconscious. But to write a book, you have to consciously consider certain things. And I feel like that paradox makes things yeah, well, so it's diff- difficult because you, know, you have to pre-consider the things you need to do in order to get to that state that you exactly. talked about. Yeah. For- it's, it's funny too. Whenever, whenever someone who, you know, is not an artist or is doesn't, is not particularly literary asks me about writing and they say things like, is it hard? Like, how do you come up with it? Like you sit down and like, it comes to you. Like people are curious about the process naturally. And for people who are, are. you know, not very artistic or like, especially if I know if they like sports, I always liken the experience as being like, uh, being like a golfer because golf is of all, of all sports, probably the most mental or probably the most intellectual game, the most heady game, certainly. And I tell people, you know, like you can go to the driving range every single day and hit like hundreds and hundreds of balls so that when you get to the tee, you cannot think about it, right? 
you know, you need to put in the conscious effort so that when the moment comes, the conscious effort evaporates and you become Zen. And I think writing is a lot like that. You know, you go to the gym every day. All of us went to a creative writing program. You spend years building the chops and you do that so that when the time comes, you know, to write the next chapter or write the next paragraph, you can kind of like sink into the pool. You know, you can kind of embrace the oceanic feeling and not think about it because you've done all that work. It's already behind you. Yeah. And honestly, uh, to come somewhat full circle, I think that's like that, that essentially encapsulates the, the transfer of motivation or the motivation, whatever you want to call it. The inspiration that I got from the last dance was like, and back to what you were saying, Devin, about you missing the way you wrote before it was like yeah. an attempt to get published or whatever. That's what I realized when I watched that documentary. I was like, I feel, I feel like I, for a number of years now, I've kind of drifted away from this point that I've been trying to make by trying to make that point, if that makes sense. <laughs> and, and now like it, like I saw that documentary and I was like, yeah, I need to set myself up to not get in my own way. Like I did before, you know, or like I, as I, as I, as you start to, when you're trying to accomplish something mm -hmm. and you want it yeah. too much or whatever, or there's like Devin said, the networking and all that bullshit. Yeah. And I think, I think if there's one thing, since we all went to a, a creative writing program and we all had our own, you know, struggles and our own experiences with it, I think if there's one thing that I would want to impart to students who are going through a creative writing program and learning how, the craft is just telling them to get out of their own way, which is what you need to be able to do. A hard yes, lesson yeah. though. One, one that takes years to, to really learn learn how to do i mean it is difficult to get out of one's own way one of the most difficult things about writing is learning how to understate something and not piling on you know but but it does it does take a removal of the self and the kind of a, a dissociation with with being the creator occasionally yeah in a way it's like playing for the win instead of for, for yourself like you know in a team sport it's like highly similar realizing like yeah, realizing how to win and not to like, you know, just pile up like personal accolades yeah. or whatever. We ain't talking know. about practice. Our producer has the joined game. us. Yeah. We're talking about practice. Practice. Not a game. <laughs> not the game I love. Our producer has joined us and is probably getting ready to tell us that we should shut the fuck up or something. Okay, I'm going to uh, sign off now. So everyone shut the fuck up. Okay, that's it for today's episode. It was lovely to be back to rejoin everyone. We're putting the episodes back up. Uh, this is going to be the 51st, so 1 through 50 are slowly coming back. I believe we're up to 20. I don't know where we'll be at when we put this one back up. But um, anyway, yeah, so you can uh, go check them out at animalrietpress.com. But if you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, as I said, animalriotpress.com. This has been the 51st episode of the Animal Riot podcast with your host, me, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring Jared Marcel Pollan, Seth Katz, Devin Kelly, and George Sawaya. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay and were produced by, Ooh. drumroll, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. All right. Excellent work, everyone. That was great, guys. Okay. That was really good. I give it 3.9 stars now. <laughs> <laughs>
Yes, sir, it's the burn. Bombing on yelling, getting gully as the burn. How no much about.